Please turn in the Word of God this morning to 1 John and the 5th chapter. 1 John 5. Want you, I want to bring a subject to you both morning and evening today, uh, dealing with the subject of, of doubt. And I will be, I'll just say it ahead of time, probably more note-tied today than usual, so I hope that you'll bear with me if it starts to appear a little more lectury than my usual uh, preaching style, but I hope that you will hear each word and give consideration to what is often a challenge for many of the people of God. So last, last Tuesday, I was endeavoring to arrange things and figure out where to go for this Lord's Day, and this was the the direction the Lord led. In part, my, my studies in, in Exodus I've been doing, um, just my, myself and giving consideration to that, not here from this pulpit, but uh, you see, see this doubt manifested in the children of Israel and Moses in chapter 5 and 6. You see how, how prevalent it is there. So I think that was feeding into my thoughts as I looked ahead and set aside the order of service last Tuesday for, for today. So I want to read just one verse and, and then get right to the subject, which, as I say, will continue tonight, God willing, as we, we look at it together. But First John 5, verse 13, and I trust you'll forgive me in, in dealing more with a topic rather than expounding on a particular passage or text, but you see the theme of the messages today from 1 John five thirteen, where the Apostle John, under inspiration, records, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Let's bow together in prayer. Let's ask the Lord's help. God, we are thankful for any grace in us that can say that I am His and He is mine. Oh, that we were more consistent in our experience of Thy grace. But it is not so this side of eternity. So with all of our weakness and failure, with all of our deficiency, we come recognizing that doubt is a reality far too often in our existence. We see it right from the beginning 
We see how Satan endeavored to bring Adam and Eve to a condition of doubt. We see it even yesterday as we stand on the streets and herald the Word of God. The natural inclination of men to not believe God. We do remember the word that was preached to thousands yesterday. At the game, on the streets, we pray that thy word would not return unto thee void. But let it not return void even here this morning. May it be received in faith. And may it accomplish thy purpose. And bring life to souls. Healing where there's wounds. And grant, O God, that we may be better helped to live for thy glory. Give the Holy Ghost, give much power in preaching and in hearing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever questioned your salvation? Have you ever gone through a period of, of questioning? Am I really saved? Am I really a child of God. One of the most significant preachers ever to live in the English-speaking world, Charles Spurgeon, preached a sermon when he was 26 years of age in which he said, I must confess here with sorrow that I have seasons of despondency and depression of spirit which I trust none of you are called to suffer. And at such times I have doubted my interest in Christ, my calling, my election, my perseverance, my Savior's blood, and my Father's love. In the same sermon, the young Spurgeon, again just 26, continued by remarking, and I trust you'll forgive me for a lengthy quote, I think it sets the scene, sets the tone both in terms of the reality that we see in this great man of God, as well as the danger. A danger in which we might accept that this is just the way it is, and it's not a sin to be confessed. It's just something that is. He says, A brother who lives very near to God, I believe one of the holiest men living, told me he never had a doubt of his acceptance since he believed in Christ. And another Christian confirmed his testimony. I do not question the truth of my brethren, but I do envy them. Tis a wondrous position to stand in. I know how it is. They, both of them, live by simple faith upon the Son of God. And one of them said to me, his friend said to him, when I speak to some of the friends and tell them that they should not doubt and fear, they say, aye, but our minister has doubts and fears. When he said that, I felt how wrong I had been, because the pastor should be an example to the flock. And if I have sinned in this respect, as I must sorrowfully confess I have, at least there was no necessity that I should have said so, for now it gives cause to some of the weak of the flock to excuse themselves. My brethren, if I should stand here and say, I occasionally steal my neighbor's goods. You would be shocked at me. But when I said that I sometimes doubt my God, you were not shocked. 
There was as much guilt in the one as in the other. There is the highest degree of criminality in connection with doubting God, and I feel it so. I do not see that we ought to offer any excuse whatever for our doubting our God. He does not deserve it of us. He is a true and faithful God. And with so many instances of His love and of His kindness, as I have received and daily receive at His hands, I feel I have no excuse to offer either to Him or to you for having dared to doubt Him. T'was a wicked sin. T'was a great and grievous offense. But I pray you, do not use that sin on my part as a cloak for yourselves. End quote. Today, I wish to help you with the sin of doubting God. And as we shall discover that sin has many expressions, that different people feel it in different ways. Assurance, which is the doctrine that we study to when we consider the, the right of an individual to know, as we've read it here in 1 John 5.13, to know. To know that we have eternal life. To know that we are right with God. Assurance is a three-pointed triangle made up of knowledge of God's Word, victory over the flesh, and the ministry of the Spirit. It requires all three of those. You can't be in a position of ignorance. That's not going to help you. You need victory over the flesh because it's inclined to disbelieve and doubt God. And you also require the ministry of the Spirit. Assurance is a work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. It cannot be attained by mere acquaintance or assent to divine truth. We don't gain assurance simply by knowing and saying, I agree with God's Word. There must be the ministry of the Spirit. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, he says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. The Spirit is given that we might know the things. The sense is, be confident about what we have received from God. We need the Spirit to help us in this regard. So it's not me standing here before you saying, try harder. You need to beg for the Spirit to work in your life and in your heart. The need to address the problem of doubt is urgent. It is sin, as Spurgeon acknowledged. And it manifests sinfulness via various expressions such as lack of joy, lack of peace, lack of gratitude, and it stifles spiritual growth. And in looking at this subject, it is not for those of you who may have built upon, let's say it this way, for those of you who have built a sense of hope and expectation of salvation based upon your own doing, based upon your own merit. If you're standing in that condition today, I have no word for you to build further assurance upon something that is a sham. Your baptism, your behavior, your spiritual devotion cannot save you. It can give no confidence whatsoever standing apart from Christ alone. In addition, I do not speak of assurance for the benefit of anyone who plays games with sin. If you think sin is a light matter, this isn't for you. Assurance is not granted, not enjoyed, not promised to those who think lightly of sin. 
If you are consistently trifling with that which you know Christ had to suffer for, you remove yourself from the blessing of assurance. I mean, you may have assurance, you may testify to having assurance, but it's not from God. It's a sham. It's built by you turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, and therefore it cannot be really from God. If you think the cross allows God to appreciate your will rather than bringing you up to strive after His will, then you've misunderstood what salvation is all about. So here this morning we are dealing with doubt, and if the Lord helps us in terms of what we aim to do, we'll cover five of them here this morning and continue through this evening in the same theme. So first, let me deal with it because it seems to come in the order of things. Doubts regarding our election. Doubts regarding our election. Thoughts about election and how that may feed into doubt. In Romans 9, verses 15 and 16, we read the apostle right there. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Now, a right apprehension and comprehension of this text brings home the reality of God's sovereignty in salvation. The doctrine of election is not simply God foreseeing who's going to respond to the gospel, but God choosing a people for himself with no outside input or influence. This truth has brought some to the point of despair and others to a condition of indifference. They conclude that since they can do nothing to influence God's sovereign election, then any effort to obtain God's salvation is in vain. And so they either despair because they can't do anything, or they shrug their shoulders and just say, well, since I can't do anything, they'll just carry on living life and make the best of it. If you've had thoughts like that, what do we say? First, the doctrine of election tells us in part why a sinner is saved, not how a sinner is saved. Now, you could argue that if you get into nuance, but generally speaking, in terms of the mechanics of salvation, we don't look at election. We look at what we're called to do, believe, repent. In one sense, we might say, really understanding election and all of its full details, I, I, I don't want to go too far and say it's unimportant, but it's not as essential as to the how. How do I get myself to Christ? That's, that's the question. That was the question on the lips of those on the day of Pentecost. Wasn't, they weren't standing before Peter saying, how can I know I'm elect? They wanted to know how they could be saved. And that direction they were to receive. Secondly, we do not make a study of election to determine our election, but we make a study of our repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we study. To have assurance, to have a knowledge that we're right with God, will not come by making a study of election, but by considering, have I turned from my sin? Have I trusted in Christ alone? Three, even after such a study of our faith and repentance, we conclude we are not saved. We do not conclude, right? So let's say you study your faith and your repentance and you say, I don't think I'm saved. That doesn't bring you to the conclusion that you're not elect. 
It does not need to follow that simply because your assessment of your faith and repentance has brought you to the conclusion that I'm not saved does not mean you come to the conclusion, therefore I must not be elect. We continue to make faith and repentance or study until we are satisfied. We have understood what God requires of us and have run from all our idols and have cast ourselves on Christ alone, believing in His willingness to receive all that come to Him for mercy. Fourthly, should we arrive at the conclusion that we are reprobate and cast off by God? How do we know God has revealed this to us and it is not a whisper of the devil? If we begin to tell ourselves, I, I think that I am not one of God's chosen. How do you know God has revealed that to you? It is certain that we make Satan's work easy if it is common, if we think it common, that God revealed to men that they are reprobate. For then all Satan must do is masquerade as an angel of light and tell us God has no desire to save you. We ought not to be so prepared to make Satan's work easy. Which leads us on then, fifthly, nowhere in Scripture is a sinner directed to their election or reprobation. Nowhere in Scripture is a sinner directed to their election or reprobation. Sinners are directed to Christ and commanded to believe. So if you are here, the question is not, am I elect or not? The question is, am I a sinner? And then you obey what Scripture says and commands of sinners. Samuel Rutherford, Presbyterian of, of great brilliance, he said regarding the reprobate, he's speaking hypothetical terms here. He's saying, you know, should someone be aware even that they were reprobate? He says this, quote, they have as fair a revealed warrant to believe as the elect have. They are men, sinners of the world, to whom Christ is offered. Why refuse they him on an unrevealed warrant? That's tremendous. Why refuse they him on an unrevealed warrant? Why come to a conclusion I will not seek Christ based on something that isn't even revealed? There is no revealed warrant to say that I cannot believe. Sinners are commanded to repent and believe. These are the things you must consider as you wrestle over election and come to perhaps considerations about, well, maybe, maybe I'm not saved. You're not thinking clearly. If you think upon the things that we have instructed you in very simply here, you will re realize that your focus is on the wrong thing. And you're to see, and as we progress, you'll see this more and more, the willingness of Christ to save, His desire to save all who come unto God by Him. Secondly, doubts regarding our conversion. Doubts regarding our conversion. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, the apostle writes there, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. The apostle speaks of, of, of committing something to God, of giving something to God, and there's debate about exactly what it is that he, he is referring to here, but largely speaking, there is some consensus of he's, he's committing his soul. He's giving his life. He's, he's trusting the entire hope of his salvation into the Lord's hands. And he knows this. I know. He comes with this sense of confidence. I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded he is able to keep what I've given to him against the day of judgment, against the coming day when we'll all give account of ourselves before God. Christ returns and ties up all the loose ends of the affairs of this world. Paul knew 
He was persuaded. He was confident. But how? How was he so confident that he was truly converted? And then the question is, can I be just as confident? Can I possess confidence regarding my conversion? For him, it happened on the road to Damascus. The account is given to us. We read it in Acts chapter 9 and see this dramatic turning from rebelling against Christ to a submission to Christ. When it comes to thinking about your conversion, men are often swift to judge their own experience against others. And often when they do so, they forget. They forget that there is great diversity to the experience of conversion. Great diversity. You don't look at Scripture and find everyone in a uniform way coming to Christ. The man who does not know the time of his conversion compares himself against the man who says he does know. And he comes away wondering, am I converted at all? He knows. I don't know. Maybe I'm not converted. The man who did not experience a dramatic change of behavior because he never lived a profligate or wicked lifestyle wonders if this lack of drama in his experience means he is not converted. I know this. I've had these discussions with people. The man who did not shed tears when he cried out to God hears of the man who did shed tears and wonders if the absence of tears means he is not converted. The man who was motivated to seek Christ out of a fear of hell hears of a man who was motivated by a message on the love of God and wonders if the entire foundation of his hope is destroyed because it commenced upon a different motivation. Am I really converted? What do we say? Maybe you've had questions like these. One, I say, examine the conversions given in the Scriptures. I ask you, are they all the same? Was the Samaritan woman converted in the same way as Zacchaeus? Did either of them go through the precise experience as the dying thief? What about Saul of Tarsus? What about Cornelius? What about Lydia or the Philippian jailer? The circumstances, emotions, the knowledge, and so on was distinct for each of them. It wasn't uniform. Now, what is uniform is the object of their faith. What is uniform is who they come to. But the particulars of their circumstance, that is not uniform. So the importance is not on the particulars of your conversion, but the object of your faith. Who are you going to? Who are you resting upon? Whose word are you trusting? Second, do not assess your conversion based on your memory of what happened in the past, but upon your current spiritual experience. Your memory. (laughs) You know it's questionable, perhaps at the best of times. And yet, on the crucial matter of conversion, we're going to gain our assurance based upon what we remember. The greatest evidence of conversion is not past evidence, but present evidence. Evidence of ongoing repentance toward God and faith in Christ alone and a desire to please and obey the Lord in all things. Where are you today? Where are you today? What think you of Christ now?
thirdly, the fact that you have realized there is more to salvation than avoiding hell is more likely evidence of sanctification than it is evidence that you were not converted. You start assessing your motivation, whether it is, I did it just to avoid hell, or because of some other trembling sense of the, the immensity of God, or the judgment of God, or whatever the motivation was originally. You know a lot more now. And the distinction here is really down to sanctification. It doesn't mean that you just blow apart what you did when you cried out to God to have mercy upon you, even though the motivation might have changed over the years, refined. Because of sanctification, all believers ought to recognize deficiency in their early spiritual experience. There should not be one of us that looks at our conversion and says, I was thinking correctly about every single thing in that moment. You were not. You were not. Isn't it good that we don't have to pass some theological test the second we are crying out to God? That salvation is not hinged upon a perfect, perfect systematic theology and biblical knowledge. All we need to know is our need of Him. And all we need to do is get ourselves to Him. There are all sorts of strange ways in which people are brought to a saving knowledge of Christ. We, we have heard them all. There, there are doctrines that aren't even biblical, that have been the, the goal to bring people to Christ. You can think of various forms of the Lord's return that have been used. I, I think, what was it? Was it Tozer? He definitely spoke of it. It was either him or a family member of his where he spoke of at one time uh, someone being converted by their dream concerning the Lord's return. And of course, it was, it was the form of that dream was all tied into more of a Tim LaHaye left behind type of idea of what's going to happen and, and, you know, people being left behind and all the rest of it. I'm sure there are many, many who have been converted as a result of that. And then later on, perhaps they've come to even their personal knowledge and says, I don't, I don't even believe that's the way it's all going to pan out in terms of what Scripture teaches, not precisely in that format or according to that timeline or look that way. Maybe you completely change in terms of who you believe are actually the left behind, which is, <laughs> is a view that many of us hold. It's completely different. Does that mean you look back and you say, well, maybe I wasn't converted because the motivation, what drove me to seek Christ wasn't even true. It's not what I believe today. No, no, we're, we're, we're complicating things. We're assessing things that the Lord never tells us to be fearful of. The question is, did you come to Christ? Did you look to Him and realize that He is the only Savior of sinners, God's provision for fallen humanity? And go to Him yourself, realizing that He saves. If, if, if Whatever it is got you there. And I don't say that to be in some way to adopt then as those who are believers some form of pragmatism in which we therefore manipulate things provided it gets people to Christ. That makes a liar, liar of ourselves. 
Knowing better, we therefore go into it in a way that dishonors God. Thirdly, doubts regarding the measure of our affections. The measure of our affections. David writes in Psalm 18, verse 1, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. I will love thee. I will love thee. David possessed a deep affection for God. How was it that he felt this way? Perhaps you've wondered if you feel anything towards the Lord. Maybe you say, maybe you've talked to someone, maybe you've expressed within your own heart, I believe in Christ, I trust the promises of God, I embrace His sovereign election, I surrender to His will. But I do not feel much warmth of affection towards Christ. I know that I sin. And I confess my sins. But I do not feel sorrow for my sins. I know that Christ died for me. And I trust in Him. But I am not overwhelmed by His love. Does this mean my profession is a delusion? Does it? Is this want of affection mean that the entire profession of our faith is a sham? Do we put ourselves outside the pale of God's mercy because we don't feel maybe the way others feel? How do we address this? First, I know how this needs to be understood. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, without the addition of anything else. Indeed, if our justification depended on our emotional response to the gospel, how could anyone have assurance of salvation? If our justification depended upon our emotional response how could anyone have assurance? Emotions are vague and transitory and undefinable things. Someone could be weeping and sorrowing and broken in tears and, and still question, was I sorrowing enough? Sinclair Ferguson was right when he wrote, if final justification is dependent on something we have to complete, it is not possible to enjoy assurance of salvation. For then, theologically, final justification is contingent and uncertain, and it is impossible for anyone to be sure of salvation. End quote. You have to complete something, a test of your emotions, you cannot have assurance. You add that in, you obliterate the possibility of assurance. Secondly, the corruption of human nature is such that anyone who believes in Christ, trusts in the promises of God, confesses their sins, possesses a teachable spirit, embraces the truth of God's sovereign providence, and surrenders to God's will, gives ample evidence of a work of grace. These things are not natural to the natural man. Now, we may 
it's possible for men to fake this for a while. But they will be exposed as soon as God's will or the will of a superior or something contradicts their own. They will immediately manifest rebellion. If we truly understand the condition of our hearts by nature, if we take to heart the language of Scripture that says none seeks after God, none's righteous, there's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. They don't exist. And then consider these things. Consider the fact that we trust His Word, we believe in Christ, we confess our sins, we manifest a teachable spirit, we embrace that He is sovereign and we invite it and rest in it and we surrender to His will. Ought not these things to give evidence of grace in the heart? Thirdly, the very disposition of the human nature is such that no two people reflect precisely the same emotions towards anything. <laughs> towards anything. I am sure midwives see it. They see it. As they see all these children being born and they, they look at the varied responses of, of mothers who have just given birth and fathers who are just watching it happen. They will see it. Some are sobbing. They're overwhelmed with grief and uh, happiness and whatever it is and maybe some fathers are standing there just kind of stony they hardly know how to respond they're maybe in a condition of shock and fear and others are just overwhelmed and crying and sobbing and others faint and all the rest of it such is the the, the difference no two people reflect precisely the same emotions towards anything there are cultural factors genetic factors hormonal factors environmental factors etc that play into the expression of emotion we all know that some people by their very nature and experiences are more dramatic and emotional while others are more placid and staid. And so is the, the stoic disposition to be judged less spiritual simply by his disposition. McShane in what we have in, a hymn, in our hymnal, Jehovah Sakenu, he gives something of his own testimony. And one of the stanzas he records, like tears from the daughters of Zion that roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul. Yet thought not that my sins had nailed to the tree. Jehovah said, can you, t'was nothing to me. He confesses, I'm weeping. I'm weeping as I see the suffering of the Son of God. And yet I was devoid of any sense that he was doing it for me and my sins. He had emotion. But he had no sense of personal guilt. No sense of personal need. The affections which pair with the true faith in Christ is, in their more holy expressions, part of our sanctification. Affections are part of our sanctification. Make sure you understand this. This is why you read your catechism. This is why you commit it to memory. This is why you, you sense the distinction between justification, which is an act done and dusted. Sanctification is a work ongoing until we're finally in the presence of our God. You realize then our affections, the very affections that we have, are not part of the justification. They're part of the sanctification. 
It has nothing to do with our justification. Thus, it may be a weakness. You may feel weak in regard to feeling a sense of appreciation for Christ and what he has done. And that may be something to bring to God in prayer. But let's say dormant passions do not indicate the absence of grace where there is a living faith in Christ. Is there a living faith in Christ? That's the question. That's what matters. Fourthly, doubts regarding the absence of assurance. The absence of assurance. Here we get to the heart of what is tied into this entire subject. And we've dealt with certain things, election, conversion, so on. But sometimes it is knowing that there ought to be assurance that becomes the actual thing we trip up over. We've read it here in 1 John 5. You can see what the Lord has recorded for us through his servant John. Verse 11, this is a record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. It's black and white. That's the way it is. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe in the name of the Son of God. Note, note how in his expression, knowing that you have eternal life, is tied to simply believing on the name of the Son of God. The knowledge, the knowledge we have, the assurance we can obtain is tied into believing. Believing in Christ. So, in relation to this, while all that we are dealing with today ties into assurance of salvation, sometimes it's not just a false understanding around some aspect of our salvation that trips us up, but just assurance specifically. Maybe you would say to John, as he's written this, I am surrounded by people who appear to know they have eternal life. The people I read of in Scripture seem to know that they have eternal life. Why is it then that I am without this assurance? Surely this is evidence that I am not saved. I may, I I don't know if I will, I may take a little more time to look at the Westminster Confession of Faith tonight. I'm not planning to, but if I don't, let me just say right now, go and read Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18. Don't just read it, study it. Find sermons that elaborate on it. Read books that help you grapple with all the statements that are made there. But I I want to read part of it. It addresses the subject of assurance in the 18th chapter telling us that we can obtain an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. And goes on in paragraph 3 to say, This infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be partaker of it. Yet being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may, without extraordinary revelation in the right use of ordinary means, attain thereunto. Now, I hope you caught it. A true believer, a true believer, may wait long and conflict 
with many difficulties before they partake of assurance of faith. When you read this chapter, I want you to note that there, there are three types of people who exist. They're the hypocrites, those who have false assurance. They're not saved. They may think they are, but they're not. There's the believer who has assurance. He's saved and he knows it. And then there's the believer who's saved but doesn't feel it. Doesn't feel it. Doesn't sense it. So why is there this challenge? Why does this exist? Because the essence of faith and assurance of faith are distinct. The essence of faith and the assurance of faith are distinct. Indeed, they're so distinct that there may be many a believer who never obtained assurance in this life, yet made it into the presence of Christ. Many. Now, there may be all sorts of reasons for that. All sorts of reasons. Certainly, deficiency in instruction and teaching might be one of them. Not everyone. Not everyone is rightfully and helpfully taught through the Word of God. Nor does everyone spend their entire lifetime studying these things. Some may convert, be converted later in life and wrestle over a life, a life that has been given to all sorts of sins. And they never come to a real sense of assurance before they pass. These things are distinct. Two, there is a curious power to novelty which can excite and assure men of the power of something without waiting to prove its substance. Thus, many a person with a dramatic conversion testimony have been thrust upon the world and their assurance of faith is founded upon the novelty of their faith. The reality is they are just as in need of assurance as the person raised in a Christian home who in their simple and childlike manner trusted that the promises of God were for them. So you see these characters, maybe some celebrity or someone is converted or even within our own circles, someone who has come from some dramatic lifestyle of drug addiction or some other horrific lifestyle and then they, they're immediately, almost within weeks or months, they're thrust before everyone to declare how confident they are that they're saved. And it's the novelty, it's the drama that actually is what they're sensing is the, the reason why they're so assured. And that in itself plays into the minds of others who watch on and don't have that drama and don't have that dramatic story and they begin to wonder what's wrong with me. But many of them later on will have their, their troubles. The novelty will wear off. So even the most dramatic convert to the Christian faith must stand the test of time and the reality of our uncooperative flesh. So be careful about novelty. Be careful about some dramatic story and seeing them as an epitome of great assurance because they may have their, their trials yet to come and the doubts may arise in the future. Thirdly, both the believer and the faith of the believer are imperfect in this life. The believer himself is imperfect in this life as is the very faith he possesses. The best of believers possess an imperfect faith, seizing upon a perfect Christ. That's the key. That's the key. Faith is hindered by ignorance of God's Word, especially ignorance in relation to the doctrine of justification. Faith is also hindered by false views regarding the character of God and the willingness of Christ to save. Is God really good? 
Maybe he's more holy than he is good. Maybe he must punish me more than he is willing to save me. And all sorts of messed up ideas regarding the character of God, especially reflected in the person of Christ. Now, recognizing, recognizing that you will never, you will never possess a perfect faith. If I may make use of Zechariah 4.10, do not despise the day of small things. Don't despise the littleness of the faith that you have. Assurance of faith is more likely to be stimulated by a spirit of gratitude for the good you see God doing in your life than by a discontent scrutiny of what is wanting. Constantly saying that I don't have what others have. And I, I don't possess what it is I think I ought to possess. Instead, see what is there. Consider what is real. Consider what you can perceive. And give thanks to God for that. Don't despise the day of small things, even small faith. Don't despise small faith. It's a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing. I love, I love the sense of this. That the, the smallest expression of true faith is sufficient to save the soul. So if you span over the history of mankind, and if you had the knowledge of God himself, and you're able to locate and hone in on the person who has possessed the smallest of faith at any point or juncture in their experience, there's the person who's had the least faith ever. It's still enough to save them. It's still enough to save them. <laughs> it is good to remember that assurance of faith does not promise perfect obedience of life as well. Just keep that in mind. We'll address more of that tonight, God willing, but... We do realize the battle of sin or with sin continues even for those who have assurance as well as those who struggle with it. Finally, doubts caused by the greatness of our sin. Doubts caused by the greatness of our sin. Think of the language of David in Psalm 51 verse 4 against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That expression by David brought brings into very clear view and focus this sense that when we do wrong, it's not just who I have hurt in the process, but fundamentally the worst thing I have done is rebel against God. I have rebelled against God. It is His law I have broken. It is therefore first before Him I must stand. Now, while the preacher often struggles to communicate to men the gravity of sin in the sight of God, believe you me, that's one deficiency in this world, both in terms of people's knowledge of the gravity of sin and that being the case in part because preachers like me struggle to really give men a sense of the gravity of sin. Even yet, though that be the case, it is sometimes the reality that a believer is so instructed in the contemplation of their sin that they are overwhelmed by the immensity of their corruption. When they have reflected on the fact that Christ had to perish 
in a fashion that would satisfy divine justice, that he must be left in a condition of dereliction on the cross. And in addition, yet millions are left to perish in their sin without hope. Such individuals may begin to feel that there's no possible way that God could have loved them and that Christ could have suffered for them. So in part, it's seeing the reality of sin. In part, it's recognizing that many other people are not converted. And these thoughts whir around in the mind and you begin to wonder, in terms of the greatness of sin, how is it that I could be saved? How do we address this? Well, first, I'd ask you to consider this. The gospel is for the chiefest of sinners. And Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, there have been some of us at times who may be tempted to take Paul to task in terms of who really is the chiefest of sinners. But I can tell you one thing, you would never have persuaded Paul otherwise regarding his own conviction that he was the chiefest of sinners before God. As far as he was concerned, he was the chief of sinners. And yet the same man could speak confidently regarding Christ's love for him, Christ's sacrifice for him, and his own faith in Christ. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This man, who considered himself to be the chiefest of sinners, believed that Christ lived in him. Christ lived in him. So he could see the gravity of his own sin. Maybe at times was haunted, haunted by his acquaintance with what he had done, and even perhaps at times what he was still capable of doing. And yet, that did not diminish from him or take from him any sense of confidence. It's not necessarily a bad thing to have a great awareness and apprehension of the awfulness of sin. That's not a bad thing. But it's not designed or intended by God to diminish a sense of assurance. Secondly, there is no piety in a false humility that imagines your sin is greater than the love of God and the sacrifice of Christ. I'm going to read that again because there are times when thoughts like this where I want to dwell on the gravity of my sin is partly motivated or undergirded by a consideration that this kind of thinking is pleasing to God. That if I dwell on the greatness of my sin and my response is a lack of assurance that there's some pious, in some way that's pious. Maybe it comes from a background of considering it would be presumptive to be assured, confident. But the Apostle Paul, keep it in mind, the chiefest of sinners says, Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. He knew it. 
There is no piety in a false humility that imagines your sin is greater than the love of God and the sacrifice of Christ. I say to you, if such thoughts have crossed your mind, repent of them. You imagine your sin is too much for Christ. Trying to convince yourself that you're lost because of the greatness of your sin after you've trusted Christ for salvation suggests that you want to charge Christ with either being unwilling or unable to save. If you think I'm unwilling, you call him a liar. If you think he is unable, you suggest he didn't suffer enough. What are you doing? When you see the greatness of your sin and begin to wonder if he can save such a sinner as me, you are, by implication, diminishing his sacrifice. And that, lest it not be clear enough in your mind, is blasphemous. Thirdly, such a focus on the greatness of sin without proper consideration of the greatness of God's mercy tends to rob from God the praise he is due. Consider the words uttered by the twister himself, Jacob. In Genesis 32, 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. Here is a man who could talk about the greatness of his sin. Here is a man who, despite the great light and privileges that he had received from God, becomes the kind of character, at least in his early life, that you, would just, you wouldn't want to be near. You couldn't trust him. And yet he is brought to realize, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. It comes forth then as an expression of praise. And that's where a sense of the greatness of our sin ought to go, and a sense of praise that God should save us. Beloved, should you not be here tonight, or for some reason the message doesn't get delivered, for who knows what a day brings forth. Do not doubt your God. I go back to Spurgeon and, I, and express to you as he considered it, where he exhorts his people, do not follow him in his sin. To question God, to doubt God, is a sin in and of itself. To them make excuse for it adds to the sin. It doesn't sanctify it or make it better. God has done enough. Christ has accomplished that which is sufficient to give confidence to sinners. Now there's more to this that we will consider. But it's sufficient for us to leave it there and realize this. He has done enough for me to trust him. He doesn't need to do any more. The Lord bless his word to our hearts. Let's bow together in prayer. I trust that as we deal with this subject, not only is it a an aid to those who may struggle at times with doubt, 
but it may be a further encouragement to each child of God. In dealing with such a subject, we, we come back to the root of the matter, don't we? We come back to the question, how is it that any sinner is right before God? And understanding that doctrine, the doctrine of justification, grasping with greater awareness and clarity what it is that makes a sinner right before a holy God is good for the soul of any. So I say to you this morning, dwell much upon the grounds of your acceptance. It is Christ alone. And if you have yet to turn your eyes onto Christ and rest in Him, I encourage you to seek the Lord while He may be found. He is willing to save. He is ready to save. And He is more than able to save. Trust Him. And if we can be of any help to you, let us know. Lord, bless Thy Word. Help us. Help us, O God, to understand more of Thy love, to recognize the glory of the finished work of Christ, and deliver us from the sinful tendencies of our carnal nature to question and doubt Thy Word. To those lacking assurance, we pray it for them. We ask that even in the contemplation of thy word today, that they may be helped and brought to a conclusion in their struggle, that they will reach the end of this conflict by coming to a certain awareness that Christ has died for them and they know it. So be with us this afternoon. Bless our fellowship in our homes, among our families and friends. And bring us back again tonight to worship Thee. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.